Welcome to the Tech Done Right podcast, Table XI's podcast about building better software careers, companies, and communities. I'm Noel Rappin. If you like the podcast and would like to encourage us to continue, please follow us on Twitter at tech underscore done underscore right and leave a review on iTunes. iTunes reviews really do help people find us and we appreciate uh, your time and effort. Today on Tech Done Right, we have an unusual and I hope special show for you. Uh, we're expanding our scope beyond companies and communities and onto using software to build better countries. Our guest today is Andy Slavitt. Welcome to the show. Andy, would you like to introduce yourself? Hey, Noel. Good to talk to you. I am uh, a recent Obamacare, uh, I should say recent Obama official, and now currently enjoying my baby brief retirement. So let me put a little bit of uh, meat on that. Andy spent the last two years as the acting administrator for the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid under President Obama, uh, which puts you in charge of Medicare, Medicaid, and healthcare.gov, and I believe a significant chunk of the federal budget, more or less, correct? You found me out. Yeah, that's right. I believe the fun fact there, Noel, is it's about a trillion dollar budget, which is about 25% of the federal budget. Yeah, so that's <laughs> unimaginable. Before that, you were placed in charge of the recovery effort on healthcare.gov, on the healthcare.gov website in 2013 and 2014. You've been a very public advocate for patient care over the past couple months, uh, both during the transition and during the current debate on the changes to the Affordable Care Act. Today, I think you're on MSNBC and C-SPAN. Is that correct? Yep. And I'm, I'm heading back to Lawrence O'Donnell tonight. So if, you, uh, if you're still awake, you can watch me again. Yeah. Those are not traditionally our feeder shows. Uh, we don't ha- <laughs> our, our green room snacks are not as good. I, I'm sorry. And I should say also, uh, we're taping this on March 13th. The Republican bill is being debated, has not yet been passed. Uh, you are probably listening to this in the future where unknowable things may have already happened. Who knows? Um, we're expecting uh, the Congressional Budget Office official scoring on the current bill to come out possibly even while we're recording. Uh, and if we leave that in, you might get uh, Andy's surprise and shock. Very exciting. But as much as I would love to talk about healthcare policy, uh, this is a technology podcast. And ever since you got involved, and I've known you for, we're related, I've known you forever. That's why you're here in case people are wondering why, how this actually comes about. Uh, I wanted to talk to you about healthcare.gov for a long time. We've never really gotten the opportunity and to talk about what that project was like from your level, from the inside at the highest level. And then maybe a little bit more broadly about the intersection of technology and government and what it means to have a public policy that needs software in order to be implemented. So maybe you could start by talking about giving a little bit of background. According to our, our metrics, we do have some listeners from outside the United States. So maybe you could give a little bit of background on what healthcare.gov was set up to do and what, what how you became involved with it to begin with. Yep, great. Well, thanks. The CBO score did just come out. And this will not be in anything interest to your listeners because they will not be in suspense. <laughs> but it did come out just as you predicted. You know, healthcare.gov was, was probably the scariest thing, truth be told, that I ever did. And I don't know if you all have the experience of ever saying yes to something uh, without really knowing what you were saying yes to or even exactly why you said yes. But, you know, there was a situation was like this. If people remember in 2013, there was a big public launch of the health insurance exchanges, I think there was a lot at stake and the things that felt like they were at stake to me were, you know, a president had sort of staked his domestic legacy against this. Senator Kennedy, who had recently passed away, had spent an entire career, as had many presidents, trying to get health reform done in the country. And lo and behold, it all came down to a crappy technology launch. 
And I think for many of your listeners, you know, who have launched important technology projects and been part of launching important technology projects, you know, that, that sort of feeling when you've got a fairly public project and you've got something in trouble, you know, multiplied by a thousand, multiplied by every eye in America on you and um, literally a daily press conference with hundreds of reporters. That was sort of the situation. And in the midst of that, I called the administration and said I would be willing to help. And, you know, little did I know that I was probably the only person that called and that was, it wasn't just me, it was the organization <laughs> that I worked with. They said yes suspiciously quickly. Was that... Yeah, they said yeah, suspiciously quickly. And in fact, the funny part, Noel, is that two days later after they agreed to work with us, and and I should just spend a minute saying that, you know, my pitch was the following. Uh, you have a technology problem. You're not alone. This happens all the time. But my prediction is you don't have a technology problem as much as you have a management problem. Uh, in other words, there's a very solvable set of technology solutions for what probably ails you, but you're not going to get to them unless you figure out how to manage this project differently. and I'm more than happy to come in and do that, but only two conditions. One is I really can't do it by your rules just for simply because I don't know them. And second is I will treat it like my own problem. I'm not a consultant. But I run a very large organization, and I can bring people and resources to bear. And then, of course, this is the funny part. After they said yes, and we said, great, we'll help. Two days later, the White House had a press conference. They announced that uh, I would be doing this, and then they announced that it would be fixed within five weeks, which was never one of our parts of our conversation. I think a lot of people listening to this are going to be able to relate to having deadlines set for impossible mm. projects outside their control. Right, of course. And, of course, the first time I heard it was at a public press conference when I was listening uh, or watching it on TV. Oh, so, okay, let me let me back up a half step and just say, like, again, to just set the stage on this, the Affordable Care Act uh, radically changed uh, health, the way healthcare was delivered in the United States, and one of the pieces of that was that people were going to be able to buy healthcare, even people who are not covered by their employers are going to be able to buy healthcare on these insurance exchanges that were going to be going to potentially states were going to be allowed to set up their own. And if they didn't, the federal government through healthcare.gov was going to allow people to purchase insurance through uh, online through the healthcare.gov website. And that rolled out, I think, October 2013. Is that correct? Yep. Okay. And and it was immediately – And but you were involved with it before that a little bit. Is that true? Or Yeah. I mean, I had I – had- the following familiarity, I had bought a company and I ran a company, a healthcare company it was called Optum that was I think about $40 billion and we had a subsidiary that had a contractor that was on one part of the project, the part that built something called the Data Services Hub, which was essentially a service that called different government agencies to get information when someone needed it. And that part was not the problem. The problem was the other part of it. So I had I had passing familiarity enough to be connected to the project, but really my involvement didn't begin in any substantive way until October of 2013. Okay, so you touched on something that I was really curious about, and the healthcare launch was immediately a problem, and it became, within the technology community, it became a little bit of a hot potato. Um, I, I sent, We'll put a link in the show notes. I sent you an article from Bob Martin, who, again, some of the people listening to this will, 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 will know Uncle Bob Martin, who's had this sort of incendiary article about how this was the worst technological disaster since the Challenger explosion and was a little bit sort of, sort of cranky about that. But that, that was sort of the tone 
or at least one of the one of the arguments within the technology community. And then, but what, what was the argument? Say so that, his say argument was he made a number of arguments. His his primary contention, which I thought was unfair, was that the problems with the website indicated that nobody involved really cared. And I think this is part of a somewhat, I think, I don't think it's hard. I don't think you can separate this from sort of a libertarian critique of doing this at all mm-hmm. and, and, and a, a sort of libertarian critique of what government work is like. But it seemed to me at the time, and I, what I want to understand about this is I imagine that there's a tremendous amount of complexity in creating a project like this that we don't even see, we don't understand coming from the outside of it. So I guess my first question is, what did you think the problems with the application were when you signed up with it to fix it? And did that turn out to be a reasonable understanding of what the issues were? Yeah. So look, I mean, I'm sort of an Occam's razor believer, at least. And I look, I know, I, I think you asked the question in an interesting way, right? Because we sort of start with our own beliefs. But my theory, which turned out to be the right one, was really just poor organization. Mm-hmm. A big project, and we've all been a part of them. Right. Big project, unclear who does what, multiple vendors, deliverables coming in at multiple different times, not singly well coordinated and managed. And then, you know, I think there were some other things. One of the contractors wasn't awesome. Some of the, the reference architecture that was picked was novel. Some of the technology pieces you know, hadn't been done at scale before. So they were trying to do a new thing. And I think they could have if it was incredibly well-managed, run and organized and executed. And, you know, the reality was, I think we all know this now, it just wasn't. So once that was fixed, and I think, you know, I had this five-week window to do most of the work and there was more work to be done for sure after the five weeks, but getting that right fixed, in my mind, 75% of it. I think we also brought some very talented people, very talented technologists to help out. And as I think you know, you can fix a lot of things with a small group of people if they're smart and work well together. And that's also, to me, about organization and management as well. Yeah. So, okay, there's a couple different directions I want to go on that. So how is something like that, a project, a government project on that scale structured? Like when people, you know, originally are signed on to do parts of that, are those bid out in piecemeal? Was the problem that each individual piece of this was bid separately and they never actually hired somebody to do the coordination? Like, what is the process for, like, even just selling? Like, who is in charge of requirements for a project like that size? How is that disseminated? I'm asking a ton of questions. I should probably let you talk now. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't there when it was conceived, but I can tell you what I observed, which is that they bid out different pieces to different contracting organizations to deliver different pieces. They didn't have a general contractor or a systems integrator. The government played that role on its own, and there were just a lot of dependencies. And then I think you had the reality that you have in every project, but I think on steroids, which is there was a drop-dead deadline. There was a you know, fixed set of resources. And... Uh, I'm sure it felt to the people on the project at the time, again, I wasn't there, that the specs were moving around continuously because the specs in this case began with the regulations that would be issued and the regulations were issued according to a schedule of public input and a bunch of other things. So, you know, I'm sure if you were on the project, you could have named a bunch of different factors that felt like they were contributing, you know, I would roll it all up and say those things probably could have been managed differently. But look, I would tell you that the ro- your role and what you do in a turnaround is different than in just sort of the normal management of a project. You have liberties uh, in a turnaround to do things faster, to, to cut corners, to break rules, to bring in talent, to spend money, to do a bunch of different things 
whenever those things are needed. And, you know, I, I can speak to fixing it better than I can criticizing the people who screwed it up. All right. So, okay, that's fine. I guess that the way that I think of managing software projects, it's sort of axiomatic that you can't fix a project that's behind schedule by throwing people at it. And based on my smaller scale understanding of how projects work, when healthcare.gov came out and, and, and when the initial launch had such problems, I think that myself and a lot of the people that I was talking to about the technology of it really were skeptical. You know, we, we all, I do remember seeing that five, the five week deadline and, and thinking like there was just no, earthly way that that was possible. So were the problems not as deep as they seemed to be? Was the rescue effort larger than anything sort of on a scale almost would have to almost be on an unprecedented software scale? Yeah, no, it's just the right question. And it's really the heart of the matter. So I got there October 24th. I didn't have a conversation with my wife until I think November 12th or 13th. I literally hadn't even didn't even wasn't even able to spend a few minutes to pick up the phone and call her. And when I called her, what I said to her was, I think I've made it worse. And she said, you couldn't have possibly made it worse. I said, no, I, I've made it worse. I've stepped in a creaky boat, put my foot in it, and, and now we're taking on water. And we were actually further behind two weeks in than we were when we began. And the, and the reason was, that we were on, let's say, release eight. You know, by that time, we were on release 10 or release 11. We eventually got to a point where we were literally doing a release at night, which was, which was amazing. That's amazing. for like That's very common in like open source web software, but at that scale of enterprise software is pretty impressive. It was crazy. And by the end, we did become a well-oiled machine, but that sort of gives away a little bit of the plot. At the point of the 12th, not only did the, did the two releases we put in have to get backed up, we had to back out an additional release. And we found out, of course, at the same time that the hardware wasn't able to support the software. We didn't know that until we put in, I think it was release 12. And what I did, and I firmly uh, believe that I did it because it was the only thing I knew to do was that everyone had a million ideas and wanted to sit in a room and talk about how to change the architecture and be smarter and all that. And I said, we're not going to do any of that. We're not going to work smarter. We're going to work hard. And what I mean by that is we have 6,000 defects and we have you know, in effect, 36 days. So I know how many defects we need to get out in a day. And we're going to bring in enough high-quality bodies to be able to each get out, whatever it was, you know, the, the human could get out 10 to 12 defects a day. And we're going to start at the front end of the system. We're going to go backwards. And we're just going to basically plug. And then we're going to get to a point where we're going to have some decisions to make. So that was my judgment was we're actually just going to plow through this and get momentum. And I believed that that was important because I also knew what would sadly happen, which is that every time we got rid of one defect, we would find two. And that happened for a while. And so we sat there uh, with literally more total defects a few weeks in than we had begun. And eventually, that's the point of time when I called my wife and said, we're, I've just screwed this thing up. So we had to buy a whole bunch of new hardware. We had to get it delivered and shipped and installed just in time, barely testing some of it after Thanksgiving. But eventually, we started to get past the horizon where for every deep bug we'd take out, we would solve two or three. And I had committed to the team that that would eventually happen. I had committed to them because I needed to believe it <laughs> uh, as much as anything else. But eventually, you started to see that through the hard work, things started to clear. And it was right around that point in time, and we were making hardware improvements to the system because we were realizing that it couldn't handle nearly the load 
that were, was going to be on the system once these things were cleaned up, that we did start to say, okay, now's the time to work smarter. And when we got to, you know, maybe a few days before Thanksgiving, we were probably on release 34 or something like that, said, let's identify the 65 most important defects to get out. And so all these people who had all these great ideas, you know, we had a couple side teams running and basically, you know, we locked ourselves in a room and found the most 65 most important defects for a user to get through the system. And, you know, I would say that um, when we got to the end of November, the vast majority of people, not everybody, but the vast majority of the people were able to get through the system and get through it in a reasonably decent amount of time from when the time I got there when virtually nobody could. And so I think it really, the order of it was work hard first, just because there's so much to do and we don't have time to debate, get some momentum, then start working smarter and smarter and identify the problems along the way and be willing to fix them every day. And of course, those are, you know, the environment. No, those are like three stand-ups a day and massive amount of information, decision-making, communication, badgeless culture. I reorganized everybody and where they created an office in Virginia for people to work on defects, created an office in Maryland for people to work on operations, moved people from their home court silos into those locations. And that's when we started to see real progress. So I have so many questions. Uh, so first of all, so I guess from a, like, from a, Management perspective, this is an interesting takeaway for people who are on projects that are in trouble to have the initial thing that you try and solve be not to try and fix all the problems at once in the perfect architecture, but in some ways solve the immediate trust issue by making the immediate focus being able to get users through the system and have the first step be to try and build back up user trust. Uh, is, is that the kind of thing that you're talking about? That's exactly right. And look, maybe someone smarter with different skills might have approached differently. This was a reference architecture nobody could understand. There wasn't any instrumentation on the site. You have to understand. So we, nobody knew what was going on. The morale problems were massive. We had different contractors who were pointing fingers at other ones, and people weren't working. People weren't showing up. I had literally had to hire two people to take attendance from one of the contractors just to literally make sure we had contractors, programmers there who knew what they were doing. You know, I guess it all depends on the state you're in. And so I don't know that you, you would necessarily be able to overgeneralize and take this to any project. But I do feel like what you said is absolutely true. We had to run at that true north. Everybody had to know what that true north was. Everybody had to know how decisions were getting made. So, you know, having a, you know, literally just setting up a process so that at four o'clock every day, people could review the defects. We could have testing time, we could then make a decision on, on go, no, go on the release that night. It could then be, you know, regression tested and all that and put in overnight, take the system down, take the system up, put it back up. And we got very good because we knew what was needed. And I don't think we would have been able to do that if we would have tried to outsmart ourselves. I don't think we would have been able to get it done. Yeah. Cause I mean, as a technology person, the tech, the temptation is always to try and fix the root cause first. And, and and sometimes that's not the right thing to do. Like sometimes what you need to do is like put the fire out first, you know, and then address the architecture. And I'm not sure we even knew uh, exactly what all the, the root causes were. Mm-hmm. You know, we needed to get more people to bang on the system and we couldn't get anybody through the system. So we had to clear out the clutter to even get to that point. So many things felt like luxuries, right? Just like knowing root cause, knowing the root architecture, having the code documented, you know, we had none of those things. And it probably was good that I wasn't a technology person, Noel, because if I was, those things might have scared me off. (laughs) And I probably was not smart enough to know. All I knew was 
6,000 defects, 36 days, get to work. And then, you know, smart. The, I don't want to suggest that, that what you're saying didn't also happen. We had some really very, very smart, terrific people, mostly working on debugging the hardware and operational stuff. And, you know, got some great people from Silicon Valley, Microsoft, Google, uh, et cetera, who were doing you know, little side projects at the same time. But it wasn't the main event. And it didn't have a place in the decision making until we got closer to the end. Would you characterize the defects as being primarily communication between different subsystems or they were primarily, were they just code that was wrong? Was it requirements that were poorly understood? Was it inner integration that, that was poorly communicated? Like what kinds of things did you find yourself fixing more? It was all of it. You know, I mean, haphazard code that was a lot of it. Your first example, the interaction points between the subsystems, truthfully, we didn't get a lot of that out until the second or year or third year. That's what the stuff that just made the thing slower and inefficient and, you know, would cause one to two to three percent of the people to run into some timeout loop. We didn't have the luxury at that point of worrying about those cases. I wanted to get 80 percent of people through the system and then 85 and then 87 and then 88. And for me, that meant going at the upfront stuff first and, you know, and going back and back and back and back. Yeah. It's an interesting strategy of trying to get as many people as far in the system as possible. I guess it sounds like you're saying you're doing that just partially that's your strategy so that you can learn more about the, the problems with the back end of the system that are being sort of hidden by the problems on the front end. Exactly. And, you know, the biggest, the best example of that is the best thing that happened to us was when the data center went down. Uh, and I referred to that a little earlier when I talked about what happened on the 12th or so. My memory's not exactly right, maybe in the 8th or 9th or something. But when the data center went down for two days and we realized we didn't have the hardware, it occurred to me, everyone was panicked because the site was down, hard down. And the silver lining, I think someone, someone said to me, boy, Andy, you're lucky this happened now and not two weeks from now. And I said, that was exactly right. Break it as soon as possible figure out where to break it as soon as possible. Because uh, if you basically believe that, you know, smart people and good management will eventually solve the problems, what you need is enough time to solve the problems. And that became like one of the cultural values. And by the way, we haven't talked about the cultural stuff that much, but like I, the lessons that I learned that I think are broadly applicable, home run 100% of the time, everything I've ever done then and since have been the cultural lessons. Because no matter the situation, and identifying problems and getting people to speak up about problems huge, became a huge cultural rule. It became like people would, we'd do a stand-up meeting, someone would say they screwed something up, they would get a round of applause from the pit boss. The pit boss was the person who ran the stand-ups because that was what we were trying to encourage. And people were, before, you didn't want to be the one that caused the problem. And so we were like, something happened at 337 on the logs and somebody did something, but no, anybody in this room do it? No hands go up. You know, that's a problem because somebody did something. Yeah. We got to figure out what it was so we don't do it again. And when people finally broke themselves of that, it was, it was much, much better. So you know, that's something I hear all, and I experience all the time is the difference. One of the differences between good organizations and bad organizations is the way they treat people who speak up about problems that they see or problems that they cause, you know. Um, the largest enterprise project that I've ever been involved at was at Groupon. And we made a point of telling all of the people that came in, all of the new, I used to run, uh, training for new developers there. And, and we made a point of saying, like, you're probably going to do something that's going to bring the server down at some point. Like, everybody here has done it. 
and it's going to happen again. And you're, you may do it at one point. And what you need to do is like fix it and not worry so much about hiding it. <laughs> That's a great thing to do, right? Because people feel like they can do better work that way. And, and of course, Problems are dangerous when they're hidden. They're not that dangerous when they're known. So what kinds of things do you do? And so I guess, first of all, how big was the org? How many developers and how many people were you dealing with at peak? It was, it was hundreds. It was maybe in the mid to high hundreds. So what do you do in an organization that big to try and and change the culture? Like as much as changing the, the software seems like a daunting task, changing the culture on my own experience also seems like a daunting task. Like what kinds of things do you do for a group of that many people? Does it help that you're mostly bringing in new people? Like what sort of practices do you put in place? You know, we didn't really have the luxury to bring in new people because the people that wrote the code were the people, the only people because it wasn't well documented, were the only people who could fix it. So that's why it was such a kind of a great cultural lesson because you had to take, you know, effectively the same sets of people. You, you, there, were, there were a few things. One was badgeless. Basically, I don't care if you're from the government. I don't care if you're one of the contractors. I don't care which contractor from. You're on the same team. And we had to do things to model that. But badgeless became like the key phrase and key buzzword. But, but, you know, badge meaning what you wear around. Yeah. You know, with your with your corporate identity on it. And so, you know, it's not to be confused for, yeah, the database people knew databases and the coding people knew coding and hardware people knew harding. But when I reorganized people's locations, we mixed them up. Uh, in our operating center, we had one person from every vendor. And we had them available, you know, 24 by 7 that were available. We, you know, we created a, you know, the second year we had HipChat, but the first year we created an open line that people had to be on uh, at all times. And so if there was ever a problem, everybody was on that line. And it was just a very much people could sort of see that. And then, you know, people were, there was a lot of bad stuff in the media. And I basically went to all the CEOs. These were big companies who were companies like, you know, Verizon and Cisco and Oracle and said, look, you guys are going to have to stop talking to the media and you're going to stop blaming one another because from now on, anybody that takes a shot at anybody else is taking a shot against me. And you take a shot against me, you're going to find out what happens. On the other hand, if you stop doing that, then I will guarantee you this, I will have your back. And I'll have your back in the media and anything that goes wrong, I will take full accountability for. And I will never point fingers. So you screw something up. We screwed it up. I screwed it up. So if you play, you choose, you can play by those rules and everybody is together. We're all for one. Uh, or if you choose to go it alone, you're going to get isolated and it's going to be painful. And we did press conferences every single day to report on progress and what was happening and give people confidence, but also a realistic sense. And, you know, I think those things, plus when we finally broke through and made some progress, and then I and I probably should add, and I probably should have said at the beginning, you know, this was this wasn't like any old technology project. This was stuff you could believe in. This was getting people access to healthcare for the first time in their lives, right? So it wasn't uh, so people could be culturally and mission committed. How long did it take before you felt like you were turning the culture around the way that you wanted? Was that something that that took days, weeks, months? I felt like we injected the culture pretty quickly with a lot of energy and really. We're able to model openness and success because I think, and look, you know this far better than I do, um, so you can disagree with me, but my perception is technologists, they want to be fact-based. They want to be problem solvers. It's unnatural for them to have the political cloak of let's make sure we don't get the blame thrown on them. So I think I lifted it up and I think it was easier because people went to their natural state. Now, I will say that some of the corporate management people were the hardest 
Like the te- I, like I felt like the technology teams were easy to get to that cultural place because that's where technology people live anyway. And you correct me if you. No, I think, yeah, I think often the problem is, is that the technology people want to solve the problem before they even figure out whether they're solving the right problem. Yeah. So yeah, that, I think that's right. I think someone saying what's the work and what's the most important work, that's what I was able to do. I mean, the thing I heard over and over again when I came in is we need someone to be in charge. We need someone to be in charge. Who's that? Who's going to be in charge? And so it was easy enough to say, okay, I'm in charge. And you know, I know how to get decisions made, and of course, I didn't know the answers to any of the uh, any of the questions that needed to get made. But I knew how to get those answers made, and I knew how to get those processes set up, and then people could really work. The people that I had most difficulty with were, you know, just you know maybe one or two of the dozens of contracting firms. They're, they're the management folks not being as on board or not being quite as giving us as talented and capable people, and they were tired, and you know there was a lot of finger pointing that went along, but. Yeah. You know, my perspective was whatever you do, good or bad, will be visible. So if you want to do, I did at one point I did twice daily calls with the White House reporting on just how that one contractor was doing. And I had them on the phone and I would call it like I saw it. I said, you can have really painful calls. I had the CEO on the call. I said, you can have really painful calls with the White House or you cannot. And if you're doing your best work and you haven't solved every problem, those are going to be fine calls. But if you tell me you're going to do A and you don't do it uh, and you say you're going to have 15 developers on the project and you really have 11, you're going to have to answer for that. Being able to to uh, bring in the White House as your hammer, behind the scenes hammer, is not an option open to many of the software projects that I've been on. <laughs> well, there's there's always usually somebody. There's something. There's some equivalent. Right. The right. It's definitely the right principle. Like we are all together and yeah. It goes both ways, Noel. It goes to core motivation. Like I tell you, like people are wired either one of two ways. They're either wired in a way where they don't want to get in trouble and they'll do anything they can to catch the other limelight or they're wired in a way where they want their work to be, they want to be able to boast about their work and have their work shown and, and known. And once you figure out on a project which way somebody is wired or which way someone's more wired, you know how to motivate them because people who aren't, aren't doing a great job and are, mo- are motivated the first way, you're like, great, we're going to have meetings twice a day. And people who just want to be out of the limelight and get their job done when they're doing a great job, you say, hey, great, you don't have to meet with me ever at all. <laughs> but if you're talking to the second type of person, you do the opposite. You say, hey, you're not doing well. So when you call me to get my attention, uh, you're going to find it very difficult. You're going to be dealing with some other people. And when you're doing well, you're going to hear your name and you're going to get to spend more time with me. And people are motivated by different things and you have to know how to situationally manage and motivate people. And that is universal, I think. So you say, so it took about two or three weeks for you to really feel like you were starting to turn the ship around and, and, and feel like you were making progress. And then how long did it take before you felt like you could like sort of stand down to normal process and start thinking about some of the larger aspects of the rec- of recovering the, the project? Or did it ever get there? <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's interesting because the software was used during open enrollment seasons. Right. You had kind of a natural rhythm. So you had a break after. Yeah, I mean, so we could begin doing planning. So open enrollment season ended in January. Then we could... We, we begin to get a, get a team set up to do planning for the next season. And the next cycle, we would spend the summer doing development. And the goal was, of course, 
this time let's not do a release every day. Let's try to get all the releases done over the summer. And um, let's think about what it is we're going to do. And it was great because the second time around, of course, people were like, you know, they, they, they said they had their list of like all 10,000 things that they wanted to do over the next year. And uh, the next lesson for everybody was great. You're going to prioritize this list. We're going to put person hours against them. We're going to cut out 15% for me to own off the top. And that 15% will be used for things we don't plan on things we sure. didn't expect or cool things that we decided we want to do. And then other than that, we're going to rank order everything. And of course they're like, great, we'll get in the room for three weeks and debate and come back and tell you with some kind of democracy consensus process. And I said, okay, how about not? How about instead we decide what our one or two key priorities are. We group things into those key priorities. You explain the logic behind it to me and you come present it to me. And, you know, I will make a, I will use a more modified consensus process where, Mm -hmm. Um, we think about what we're not thinking of and all that, but we make a, we use a much more decisive, you know, sort of process. You're a, you're acting as the as, as not just the manager, but you're acting as the, the the product owner, really, the person who owns the requirements. Yeah, I mean, there were people who actually did that. I just helped facilitate those decisions. Okay, what haven't I asked? I feel like there's got to be something that I don't even know to ask that has some cool story behind it or some interesting insight. You know, I, look, I, I think that. There's, you know, yes, a lot, a lot of the things that I think are universal truths and the things that are sort of culture and process. And, you know, I think I probably could emphasize that we brought in some, some really great people that did uh, help us make lots of progress and change. I think that probably the thing that was most interesting to me that I learned the most was when you're in situations that are so high stakes, like that, you have to take real risks. And that's really uncomfortable. But, you know, I guess I'd say it this way. If they hadn't said you've got to get this done in five weeks, that really it really ended up helping us frame mm-hmm. what you could do and what you couldn't do. And you could rule out a whole bunch of things. And I think maybe if I were going to leave you the last point, it would be creating some art, even if it's an artificial deadline and saying we're going to get uh, everything done by a certain point in time. Uh, you'll make certain choices and consequences. They may be the right ones, they may be the wrong ones, so you've got to pick it right. But that helps you get very deliberate and very intentional and rule stuff out and then, you know, take things in stages. And then I think you just got to tell people uh, who don't think you're going to get from here to the end of the tunnel, don't worry about the end of the tunnel. Worry about today. And if today is too much for you to worry about, worry about this hour. And if this hour is too much for you to worry about, worry about the next 10 minutes. <laughs> uh, otherwise, you know, you'll paralyze yourself. Yeah, that actually, I mean, that that dovetails really nicely with the the sort of like the kind of agile software management that I don't normally associate with government. The thing that I wanted to just quick ask you based on the thing you said is what you said you have, you know, when you have a deadline like that, when you're in that kind of situation, you need to take risks. What part of the things that you put in place or the processes that you try to do, like what felt risky to you uh, as opposed to what felt like just a good idea that needed to be imposed on the project? You know, taking down the system every night, because, you know, he didn't always come up in the right order and there were just pieces that you didn't know how they were going to work. Every time you changed something, you didn't know how the system was going to interact, but you had to change it anyway. So I slept with my cell phone next to on my pillow and, it, you know, there were very few nights where it didn't ring with, oh my God, here's what we learned. But going back to what we talked about earlier, people ended up getting really, really familiar with the system. And it's sort of like, you know, it didn't, have all the right documentation, architecture, and all that, but it had a bunch of people that like had developed over like the five or six weeks or more really good instincts and calluses. So like you know you develop all that investment that we were doing in fixing the problems was also an investment in people who were like, oh yeah, this part this part of the site has an issue. Call Scott; he'll figure it out. Mm-hmm. And that was 
crazy, but, but, you know, there's also career risk, right? I mean, I look back on it and, you know, I didn't have to make that call and my life would have been just fine. And I ended up pretty much exposing myself to a problem that I realized going in, I didn't know how to solve. And at one point thought I'd made worse. You know, those are the kinds of things you, you know, I was pretty late, you know, pretty well developed in my career. People don't normally take those kinds of risks that late in their career. I guess then the question is, was it because you, you chose to take it on because you thought you saw a way, I mean, I'm assuming that part of the reason you chose to take it on was the sort of align, the, the values alignment of it. You wanted to see this work because you wanted people to have access to healthcare. What about what you saw made you think, not only is this something that I really want to have happen, but I can actually, I can make this work. Boy, that is a really amazing question that I don't have the perfect answer to. I mean, I think sometimes you just do stuff because they need to be done. And uh, I will say, like, the one point in time the president made a comment, and I don't think he was just referring to me, but he was referring to, you know, people who helped out in the project and helped turn it around. And, and you know, the president likes to talk and uh, talking about President Obama and not President Trump. Uh, president Obama said he likes to talk in basketball analogies. He said, leave something to the effect of, you know, some people like to have the ball in the fourth quarter and some people don't. And, you know, I think his perspective was that um, if you like to have the ball in the fourth quarter, you're not necessarily sure you're going to win the game. Um, you're not necessarily sure you know, exactly what's going to happen, but you know you'd rather have it than someone else and you want to be in. I mean, that's just what drives you. And, you know, there's all kinds of risk in that, right? I mean, there's all kinds of reasons not to do that. It's pretty safe on the bench. But, you know, there's nothing like it, right, being in game within the fourth quarter, to use Obama's analogy. Sure. Tech Done Right can be found at techdoneright.io or downloaded via iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can send us feedback or ideas on Twitter at tech underscore done underscore right. The Tech Done Right podcast is brought to you by TableXI, a UX design and software development company in Chicago. We are 35 meticulous and curious minds with a 15-year history of building websites, mobile applications, and custom digital experiences. Find us at TableXI.com where you can learn more about working with us or working for us. Thank you so much to Andy for taking time out of his schedule to be with us. I really appreciated this conversation. I do hope that the listeners get something out of it, and I appreciate it doing it. It was fun. Okay, thanks. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with the next episode of Tech Done Right. Thanks. Thanks.